we went to the baseball game and his dad was the athletic trainer for the Cleveland Indians. He was a great man. We got to go in the locker room and meet the players. And it was the first time I seen that there was people who could have a big house and do a job in sports, but not play the sport. So I'm like, wait, he gets to be in the locker room like one of the guys, but he doesn't have to hit home runs. That's right, he's taping ankles and he's got a big house that feels like to me what an athlete will have. And it was the first time I realized there are jobs in sports outside of being the athlete. Welcome to season four of Needing Dough, the podcast presented by Uninterrupted and Chase. I'm Andrew Hawkins, AKA Hawk. And here on Needing Dough, we sit down with your favorite athletes to talk about how they learn to manage the life-changing amounts of money that becoming a pro athlete can provide. Now, we are going to change things up a little bit this season. I will be taking over for the one and only Maverick Carter. So, each episode, I'll be the one sitting down with the athletes to share their stories. Now, I know those are big shoes to fill, but Mav has groomed me, he has empowered me, and I know that I am up for the challenge. As usual, I'll continue to guide you through each episode, and we've got an amazing lineup for you this season. As a former NFL wide receiver myself, I'm going to bring my own personal perspective on how these lessons from legends can translate to you and your life. And it is only right that we kick things off with a very special episode. But first, a quick timeout. Needing Dough, the podcast is presented by Uninterrupted and Chase. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your shows. And before we get into it, it's a little listener note. This episode that you're about to hear was recorded in front of a live audience in New York City in December of 2019. And now, introducing our guest, a man that you're used to hearing as the host of these conversations, uninterrupted CEO and one of my favorite people on earth, Mr. Maverick Carter. Maverick is one of the most gifted storytellers in Hollywood and is a true visionary. On top of building a media empire, he's the business manager and best friend of the GOAT, LeBron James. One of his main missions is empowering athletes. And to be honest, he's a huge reason why I was able to transition so smoothly into business and entertainment at the end of my NFL career. On today's show, you'll hear Maverick talk about the story behind the Needing Dough brand, growing up in Akron, Ohio, and his evolution from college athlete to business mogul. All right, let's get to it. Here is my conversation with the illuminating, inspiring, pioneering Maverick Carter. All right, so, well, first, I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, add this to your resume. You are also my secret weapon in a... NFL analysis. So what happens is Matt will text me and he'll, he'll give me his take on a football situation and I will go right to national TV and I will say it as if it's my own and they will praise me on Twitter. <laughs> uh, so I appreciate you for that. That's, that's one of the joys of my life <laughs> is watching football and being able to channel my feelings and analysis through you, you know to the what? world. The more you can do. Let's start with kneading dough. Where did you come up with the concept for it? The idea came from a couple of places, mostly just observing pro athletes throughout my whole career. My mm-hmm. career started at Nike, then I went on my own, managed athletes, and always observing how athletes made a lot of money, what they did with that money, how they preserved it, how they spent it, how they invested, and being intimate with it. And then also, for my own career and my own life, I was learning about money and finance myself for when I ever came into money. I knew what to do with it. So those two things combined led me to to a point where I started thinking about the way finance and athletes was always talked about to me became very disturbing. I think because athletes were always put in this box or this position of I mean, frankly, people calling them stupid, basically, like they 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 always uh, mess up their money. They blow all their money, they fuck their money up. So that being the case, it really started to bother me because a lot of it became sensationalized, right? Because you could make, ESPN can make a 30 for 30 called broke or you can get clicks if you put the headline, ex-athlete used to have $100 million, now broke. 
but nobody had ever really dug into what does that mean? How does an athlete feel about that? And most importantly, as young athletes, how does it feel to have your life flipped upside down when you're making the most money and the best at your job when you're the youngest age instead of the opposite way for people like myself and now that you're an executive, as executives, we get better, get older, you make more money, it's the opposite. So nobody had really did anything except for sensationalize the idea of young athletes losing their money. And frankly, you know, when you talk NBA and, and NFL, which is a lot of money is made in those two sports, it's predominantly young black athletes. So I think that was always sensationalized in another way to show, hey, these guys, it makes the conversation around these guys don't deserve to be paid for this. Right. Why are they complaining about that? They don't even know what to do with the money. So that started to disturb me as I went through my career. So it led to this idea as, as we were sitting with Chase trying to figure out a creative idea, the team um, at Robot and the team at Uninterrupted, we started thinking about how do we really break this down and get into it? We got to the word needing dough based off a of Jay-Z song and then started to craft the creative idea just around creating a conversation that A, dealt with that, but also empower people who were listening and watching to feel a part of the conversation and then made it easier for them to express these feelings or these questions that they have and don't know. I mean, why was that important for you to tell that story to the world, right? Yeah, it was important um, selfishly because I, I wanted to build a place, a platform, a show where athletes could come on and be truthful and honest about what does it actually feel like to be 22 and make $10 million. So like when we had Serena Williams on the show in the first season, she talks about when she won her first tennis match, I think she must, I mean, her first tennis tournament, she was still in her teens and she got a check for a million dollars. And she said back then you would go literally to the, back, the office after the match and they'd hand you a check. And she went right to a bank like this and handed it to the teller. And the teller looked at her like, what the hell do you want me to do with this? <laughs> it's like, you know, it's a million dollar check. And, and she talks about that feeling and going through that. And that's, uh -huh. I wanted a place where that conversation can be had because there was no place for it. Otherwise, it's always just used as clickbait in a way for media companies to drive clicks and, you, and use the athlete instead of empowering them at the same time empowering the audience. Now, we do a lot of impactful things and, and you specifically have developed so many impactful things at Uninterrupted. And I can't tell you how many people have come to me and pointing to Needing Dough as like the North Star where they're like, man, this, this changed my entire perspective and something they related to, even though they are not professional athletes most times. Did you realize how much of an impact the series was going to have when you came up with it? Um, I don't think we realized it then, but we realized it as we got going. Mm -hmm. A. B, obviously we wanted it to have big impact and we wanted it to become not just a show but a real platform needing dough has become a platform you host the, the podcast there's the show there's live events like this when we're really building a platform that allows all to come in we're using athletes at the tip of the spear to tell their story so people can look at them and go oh if draymond or ben simmons can discuss this then i can discuss this too with my friends and i think needing dough has become one of the flagship brands that we'd have at Uninterrupted. And to, the same thing with me, out of all the things we do, the most people come up to me, the thing people come up to me and say the most is thank you for, for you guys creating Needing Dough. It was something that I needed, we needed, the community needed, people needed to, to feel empowered about having conversations around money. So you came up with the name from the Jay-Z lyric and you were able to clear the Jay-Z song, yep. which that would cost uh, more money than I had, <laughs> for sure. But in, in the magic that is Maverick Carter, how, how were you able to get that music cleared? I, I got the, the, I mean, you know, Jay-Z I think is one of the great writers of, of all time, definitely mm -hmm. of, of this century. And, and I mean, just a fantastic writer. And that line, is, which is on a song, which was never on an album, I think he just put it out to the world a long time ago. It always stuck out to me as one of his uh, many great lines that he's had, one of my favorite ones, um, and the way he related it to sports, actually. Um, and when we came up with the, the brand and then thought about the song and then pulled it, and we, I was like, let's pull that line as the opening intro. 
to kneading dough and, and like make it part of the brand. And Jay being Jay, when I called him and explained to him, the first thing I did was explain to him what kneading dough was, why it existed, why we thought it needed to be existed, and why it was early days and uninterrupted, and what uninterrupted was and what we were gonna do. And I told him the creative idea that I want to use that for the open. And he was like, kneading dough is absolutely needed. I hope you kill it, do great with the show, and I'll make sure you get that clear. I mean, the Maverick Black Book of Rolodex, just to say, oh yeah, I'll get it clear. I'll just call Jay-Z, no big deal. And then it's done. That is the why you are so special in the way that you have positioned yourself throughout the entire industry. You've had 16 interviews with Needing Dough. What is one lesson that you can point to to take away from all the different conversations that you've had? I think the biggest lesson, I mean, I, I didn't even know that number, but 16, wow. There's tons of lessons in all of them. Um, you know, there's been funny one-liners and, and, and lots of things revealed that athletes otherwise wouldn't talk about, but I think the thing, the lesson that I've learned is like, it's very therapeutic for the athletes to sit there and actually discuss things they don't know, things they screwed up, things they didn't know two years ago. Now they know right. it becomes very therapeutic for, I think, us as humans. And it's, it's, it's nerve wracking at first, but the minute you break through that wall to start talking about, I don't understand this, I don't know that, I thought this, but I was wrong, really start breaking through that wall of what you don't know and what you do know, it becomes therapy and it just flows. And that's where the real great stories, great information and the real empowerment happens. So, I mean, you have a foundation in basketball, right? And, you, and you've been in that industry since you were a teenager, really. Yep, absolutely. Um, but here on the platform, you've talked to professional athletes from tennis, uh, skiing, gymnastics, gymnastics, retire. so every kind of professional sport you can imagine. Is there anything on this side of it that you may not have thought or been surprised about when you first started the series? Um, you know, we always wanted to have all type of app, retired, young. We had Ben Simmons in his rookie year. Athletes who've made a lot of money like Serena and LeBron. Mm -hmm. Athletes like Draymond Green who weren't predicted to ever make a lot of money. He was a second round pick was looking for a while like he might end up overseas but ended up making a lot of money yeah and and you know Draymond and I talked about he gave me a real interesting perspective it was you know back when the Cavs and the Warriors were playing in the finals I was going to the games and I was telling him that you know now the Chase Center by the way <laughs> the tickets are really expensive for the finals like the most expensive uh of any finals I had ever been mm -hmm. to and I've been to many finals um, in my career, NBA final games, and the tickets, I said, the tickets are so expensive here. And I, we were just talking as friends, and I was explaining to him, like, I'm paying, I can't believe how much I pay for tickets. And I actually did a little research. I think the, the Warriors are making like three times the amount the Cavs were at the gate for each one of those finals. Games. And that, that year they went seven. And Draymond, because he has that perspective of and why we wanted athletes from all different places, he said to me, you know, Mav, you're so right. He goes, I, I actually went to the GM of the team and said, this is really screwed up. And it's not because they as players, if they want extra tickets, the NBA finals, everybody's got to get extra tickets. Yep. Your family, friends, cousins, cousins you didn't know you have are now in town yep. want to go to the game. Everybody's <laughs> in town, right? So he said, I went to the GM and said, you know, the tickets are so expensive. I'm Draymond. At that time, I think he's making $16 million a year. He goes, it's not so bad for me, but I know what it's like to be a second-round pick. And he pointed to one of their rookies, a second-round pick, because that guy's making $700,000, which is a lot of money, a whole mm -hmm. lot of money. But when you cut that in half and it's now three twenty, and they played four finals games and right. he needs five or ten tickets, he, we did the math. He, he might, if he needed six tickets or 10 tickets, he could have spent 10 to 15% of his salary on just those four games for tickets. Yeah. So Draymond said, I can, I said to the GM, that's bullshit. Like that's, but my point is we wanted athletes on needing dough who had, that's a perspective LeBron James doesn't have, right? right, right. He's never been yep. that, that guy. He doesn't know what it means 
to be a second round pick and hoping you make the team and you make the team and you're making hundreds of thousands instead of millions and now it's the finals and you're on the team. So of course you're like, he doesn't know. So we always wanted this show to have, we've had Simone Biles from gymnastics. We wanted to have a range of athletes so we could get those little bits and understandings. We wanted a tennis player because tennis is not a team sport. So when you win in tennis, you get paid, you go get the check and that's it. It's not like that in football or basketball. Right. So why is financial empowerment for athletes so important to you? At Uninterrupted, our thing, as you know, is empowerment and empowering athletes, but also empowering consumers and the audience that interact with our content, buy our products, mm -hmm. everything that we do. So the idea of financial empowerment for all is very important to us as a company. Yeah. And specifically as for athletes, as you think about our tagline, our just do it is more than an athlete. So... People definitely, like me, love, I watch football every Sunday, I watch basketball, I watch soccer, I love the sport, but you sometimes as a fan, even me, I, you, get, you can lose track that that's a person out there that has, when the game's over, they gotta like take that helmet off and those shoulder pads, take that jersey off, those mm -hmm. shorts, that kit, whatever, and go into the world and be a, per a person. And being empowered, off the field, the pitch, the thing is, doesn't come natural to an athlete. You need right. to think about that, talk about it, feel it, understand it. Throwing a touchdown, catching a touchdown, scoring a goal, mm -hmm. doing three backflips actually is extremely hard for the rest of us, but to athletes that comes natural. But right. it's the other stuff that is actually very hard and I've seen that my whole career. So, and then when you put in finance and the idea of figuring out what to do with money, that becomes very unnatural. So that's why it was very important to us. So, I mean, and now if you look at the landscape of sports and even in society in general, empowerment and, you know, that education and changing the narrative is now becoming the norm and athletes doing everything they're doing off the field and and being well-rounded civilians is normal. But when you first started doing it, you were the only one beating on that drum and you really kind of flipped the sports landscape on its head. And I want to try to get down to like where that mindset comes from, because an aptronym is when somebody's name almost perfectly describes who they are as a person or what their occupation is or their character. And Does that happen on accident or do people? Th that's what I'm. That's a big word you use. Thank probably. you. Thank you. I, I, got, I went on Wikipedia but, yeah, and found it. I thought that came from your Columbia education. <laughs> so. I mean, I like to think I'm a little bit of an acronym with the Hawk because my personality is I have an aerial view of things. I'm a dreamer. Um, I'm very candid. But then the more that I'm around you, it boggles my mind that your actual birth name is Maverick and everything you do. And Maverick, by definition, is someone who's a trailblazer or, you know, an independent minded thinker who does things their own way. The more I'm around you, it seriously blows my mind that that's your birth name. So. We'll start from the beginning. Who named you Maverick? Um, my name, I'm, I love my name. I'm, uh, you know, um, people do ask me sometimes. They don't, two, one of two things. People don't believe it's my real name, but <laughs> it's, the, it's the only one I got. Um, and then people who are uh, older than me, who remember the show from the 60s, ask me, is it my last name? Because I'm named after a TV show that was called Maverick. But mm. on the show... The character's name was Brett Maverick, so Maverick was his last name. Gotcha. Um, and my grandmother loved that show, and on the show, the uh, got the character was played by James Gardner. He was a, a cowboy who um, went kind of town to town, always kind of saving the town, just him and his horse and his gun, and saving the town. And in the it was set in the westerns, and the western time and. The thing that he always ended up in, at the, kind of the middle to the end of the show, was a poker game in, in the town, playing against kind of, and he was a world-class poker player and card player, and then Maverick is kind of synonymous with cards and, yep. and poker, and that was my grandmother's business long before I was born, and then probably for the first 10 to 12 years of my life, she ran after hours where people could come and play poker, pity pat, and shoot craps in her basement, and she'd take a cut of the game, and um, sell food. And literally when my mom went to labor with me, my grandmother left a poker game <laughs> to come to labor, uh, to come to the hospital. So she's the one who gave me the name Maverick. And um, mm. 
And I also think she's the one, uh, she's passed away. She's the one that gave me, she most helped me define me just through her spirit yeah. of who she was. Um, and I spent a lot of time with her as a kid. So she helped help me define my spirit and just figure out who I was. And I spent a lot of time with her yeah. and she kind of put that in me and gave me the name too. So she has like the gambler mentality, risk taker. 100%. And that's where you get it from. 100%. 100%. I think, you know, the idea of, I did a commencement speech at USC last May and I talked about the idea of upside versus downside is just like the greatest thing in the world for me. I love to always be thinking about upside versus downside. And I think, you know, to your point, I, I always go for it. Uh, yeah. I, I go for it. It's, uh, it's just who I am. I go for the, for, the, for the upside. I like the upside. I think about the downside and I try and have much, as much downside protection as I can. And so I'm covered, but I always like to go for the upside, and that comes from my grandmother. And and that really, like to me, I'm the complete opposite. I want to control all the variables. My grandmother, my grandmother had a great line. She always said, "If you got a hunch, better bunch." If you got a hunch, better bunch. All right. I mean, you are a risk taker, and your ability to take the risk and then not even consider the what is is kind of what makes you special. And t tell me about your father. What, what was he like? My dad. Uh, my grandmother I was talking about was my dad's mom. My dad is a, uh, he's a special guy. He, my grandmother had seven kids in nine years. So they're all, my, she had a boy. Wow. She had a boy, five girls, and then another boy. My dad is the youngest. So he turned 60 in May. His brother, who's the oldest, is 69. And the girls are all in between in their 60s. So my grandmother, so they're all close in age, but my dad was the youngest and he has that youngest mentality. Mm -hmm. Like he has no idea how to talk with an inside voice. He's always extremely loud. Cause, and I, it took me literally till like this year, I was 38 when I, cause it bothers me. I'm like, yo, can you please, like you come in your house, my house talking so loud. And it dawned on me literally just this year that, oh, it's because he's all, he was always trying to be heard and seen right. because he's the youngest and they're so close in age. It's not like they were all in the house together. Mm -hmm. But my dad was also born with a hole in his heart in his aortic valve. He had, he's had open heart surgery three times in his life. First one at five years old and 19 and in his fifties. So um, he was a guy who's always out to prove himself. He was the youngest. He had a, a heart deficiency. He couldn't play sports as a kid, couldn't pass physicals. Always still is, he's 60 years old and he still has that. He's got to prove himself. He's going right. to be right no holes bar mentality. And uh, my dad dropped out of school uh, in high school and became, but he's, but he's not a guy who is gonna sit around and wait for anybody. And because mm -hmm. of his, his heart condition, he was never really able to get a laboring job and he didn't have an education, so he couldn't get um, an executive job. Mm -hmm. So he started hustling on the street, um, which did land him in jail. He spent time in jail. But he's a guy who always can figure it out. Got out of jail, figured out a way to just do whatever. And he does it through his curiosity. And what I get from him is he's the most, if he sat with you for 10 minutes, I always say he plays a 20 question game. He always like, he tries to get 20 questions out in the first five <laughs> minutes of knowing you like, what's your name? Where are you from? What's your mom's name? What's she do? What do right. you do? Like he just always is trying to gather information and he, always can figure things out that way. Right, and you kind of get your entrepreneurial spirit from him. Because totally I mean, from him. where we come from, I mean, the, the hustlers that's are the it. first that's entrepreneurs the, we know. That was what I always tell people when I was a kid, the first entrepreneur I had ever seen in my neighborhood and on the north side of Akron was a lady who lived across the street from us. I was just talking about this at Thanksgiving and her house, you walked in their front door and she was the neighborhood dry cleaners, basically. You could take your laundry to her. She would wash it, press it, just like a launder, just like a launder, launder it. You come back in a day or two days and pick it up. And you could take sheets, whatever, clothes. And when you walked into her front door in the living room, she had no furniture, it was a table. Cause she, and she had like candy, candy, like penny candy. And so right. while you were waiting for your laundry, you'd buy some candy or kids. We That was the first entrepreneur I seen. And then in my neighborhood, right, crack came and it was a crack became an epidemic and everybody turned to one side or the other of it. You either 
was dealing it or using it as adults. So hustlers selling drugs or gambling, that was, an, that was besides her, those were the only entrepreneurs that I seen were people who got out and, and really used a sense of those, when you're out there, right, you have the, your, your spider senses have to be extremely high because yeah. you have all type of issues going on. Those were the people I saw as a kid, for sure. That really is an incredible point by Mav. So much of our philosophies on finances and business hinge on what we were exposed to at a young age. For me, I leaned on my grandfather for everything I wanted to know about money. Not because he had a lot, but because he was one of the only people I knew that wasn't living check to check, so he seemed more credible to me. My grandfather was an entrepreneur and had been since the 1950s. And while I didn't quite understand exactly what his general contractor business entailed, all I knew is that he was in charge and that how much money he brought in was driven only by how much he was willing to work to grow his business. While there is absolutely nothing wrong with either lifestyle, for me, it shaped my outlook on what I felt success looked like. And that was putting myself in position to be in control of my own earning potential. So uh, growing up in Akron, what was your financial situation like? My financial situation um as a little kid, we lived in a low-income neighborhood, um, a house that my grandmother had bought in the, I think she must have bought it in the, maybe the late, no, in the 60s. My grand, mm-hmm. my mom was already born. And when I was born, my mom uh, and dad were together, and then they separated uh, probably three or four years after I was born. So they lived in a, we lived in a small apartment together. Then we moved in with my grandmother. But my aunt, my mom's sister was in jail, so her two kids were there. Uh-huh. My grandmother was there, me and my mom in a two-bedroom house. But it, but I grew up happy and feeling good and never right. wanting food. But we lived in a, you know, back then, I didn't know. I didn't know what Manhattan looked like or felt like. I didn't know anything about anything besides kind of North Akron. So I thought I had everything. I felt like it, at least. And when my dad, before my dad went to jail, we had a little bit of money. We were hood rich, right? Because uh-huh. my dad sold drugs. <laughs> So, um, and then when he went to jail, things changed drastically. You know, that yeah. I'll never forget that basketball season. Uh, when I got ready, football season, and it was time to go into basketball season. And my mom pulled up and didn't have the, J- the Jordans for me for that year. I was like, <laughs> what's <laughs> going on? What, what happened? So, but, it, you know, it definitely taught me that there are ups and downs in life. Uh-huh. And you got to ride them. My dad went away. My mom worked her job for 29 years. She was a social worker for the county that we lived in. And she made enough that we I never wanted for clothes or food. Mm. We had lights and things on, but there was no extra. Right. There was nothing extra. And um, my mom, you know, as we're sitting here talking about this show, talking about finances and money, we never, ever discussed it in my house. It just never. Really? The only thing we would discuss with money is we're short on money. <laughs> we ain't got it. We ain't got it. <laughs> Or my mom would go to the, you know, one of those uh, payday loan places mm-hmm. that rip people off. Um, she would go to one of those places and I never understood it. I just know she would go in there and get four or 500 bucks right. if we needed it. But we never, ever discussed money. And in fact, just until two days ago was the first time I ever still now asked my mom, how much money did she make when she was working? I had never asked That's her. Amazing. It was just a thing that we just never talked about. So how, how did your upbringing, because I, I mean, I remember when I realized that we didn't have a lot. So my mom also worked and I was going to the private school, um, living in, you know, in the area where, you know, people with not a lot of money live. And I was in the private school and I remember the the teacher asked us to bring sombreros into class for this, you know, whatever lesson we were doing. And I'm like, where do I get a sombrero from? And they're like, oh, you can go buy one. Or if you go to Chili's, they'll give you a free sombrero. So I go home and I'm like, yo, we got to go to Chili's to get a sombrero. And they looked at me like... Who gonna pay for chili? <laughs> so my dad made a sombrero with like half of a milk jug and put a brim on it and put like a straw basket over it. It didn't look like a sombrero. I was Don't gonna say, that's, yeah. when I got to school was when I realized they were looking at me like, like what the hell is that? So that was the moment it clicked for me that, oh, there's people out there with a lot more than what I had. Of course. What was that moment for you? That moment for me was, and I'll never forget it because it really did change my life, was in the sixth grade, uh, I was playing basketball uh, in the ARB League, which is the Akron Recreational Bureau League. So in Akron, 
like most cities, kind of every neighborhood. We have four sides of town, Akron, north, south, mm -hmm. east, and west. And uh, black people live on each side, white people live on each side. And in each neighborhood, there's a rec center. So that rec center, ours was in the projects, actually the projects where LeBron is from, uh, in the bottom, we call it. Mm -hmm. And um, I was playing on the team for the rec center, and you play against the other rec centers. You go around, you play the rec center from the east side. The, all the different rec centers play in this league. And um, a guy, a, a, a father, a white father from the suburbs, his kids were not from Akron. His son was a really good basketball player, but he was not from Akron. He's from a suburb, an adjacent suburb, brought his kid to play in the ARB because he wanted his kid his kid, he felt, was too good to play against kids in the suburb. He yeah, wanted to play against cop. kids against in the city. So he brought his son in, and his son was like, he played well enough that, like, we all respected him, which, you know, as you know in sports, when you're in the inner city and it's all black uh, kids playing and the white kid shows up, everybody's like, <laughs> who are you? Like, right. you can't play with us. But he could really ball. And at the end of that season, his dad decided to put together – an AAU team. So he kind of cherry-picked the players from each team in the rec centers that he thought were the best players to go play on this summer. And we got to play on this team, and you had to travel. And he picked me as one of the players uh, from the ARB. And we actually added a couple other kids from the suburbs that were good. Uh -huh. And one of the kids was a, a kid named Jordan Warfield, who one day uh, invited a group of us to go to an Indians game, Cleveland Indians, a baseball game, which I had never been and to his house, and we went to his house, and he lived in this town called Hudson, Ohio, and his house just blew my mind. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I couldn't believe, you know, I knew you watch movies or whatever that people have big homes and things, but to actually be in one, I had never been in a house this size. Like, I remember very vividly, like, the pantry blowing my mind. Like, they had a room with just food. Just like, they, had a, they had a room dedicated to food. I'm like, I never... <laughs> seen that before our the top of our fridge is where the where the snacks and the food goes there's no room dedicated to food so seeing that and then we went to the baseball game and his dad was the athletic trainer for the cleveland indians and he was i think he was the athletic trainer for the indians for 35 years or something uh -huh. before he passed away a great man we got to go in the locker room and meet the players and i wasn't much of a baseball fan a little bit but i was very intrigued it was the first time i seen that there was people who could have a big house and do a job in sports, but not play the sport. Right. Like I, I connected those things like, wait, he gets to go in the locker room mm. and they kind of, you know, a trainer gets treated like one of the guys. Yeah, in the locker he's still room, the man. And he's in there taping ankles and wrists and doing his thing, getting the guys ready to go warm up or whatever. So I'm like, wait, he gets to be in the locker room like one of the guys, but he doesn't have to hit home runs. Right. That's, right. He's taping ankles. And he's got a big house that feels like to me what an athlete will have. And it was the first time I realized there are jobs in sports outside of being the athlete. And that was the very, that's the moment when it, it, was, it wasn't so much that I realized how much we didn't have. I realized that you can have and still do something that you love and be around something that you love and have a lot and still do that. It was the first time and it blew my mind and I'll never forget it. And, and it plays still to your mindset that in that situation, not thinking about the downside of like, yo, I don't have this, but the upside of like, the upside, I could, I can I go could do that. this. And I went home and I told my mom, my mom would say it right now. The first, the first profession outside of being a NFL player, an NBA player that I said I wanted to be was an athletic trainer. And I was like, I was like hooked on it. I was like, that's what I'm going to be. And I carried that all the way that that happened in the summer of my sixth grade year. So I was 11 years old going on 12. And I was that way all the way into college, went into college, went to gym and was gonna go, I was gonna go for that until I got my internship at Nike. That was what changed me like, oh, there's other. <laughs> what? what? Like wait, there's, there's, more, jobs there's more jobs in sports. So I was like, and I was stuck in between. That's when I went for, to start studying business and marketing, started working at Nike, but all the way up until then, that vision of him in that locker room, he's had the gear on like one of the guys, like yeah. he had the, the Indian's jacket, the sweet hat, everything. And he got, he had a little office in the locker room. So up until then, that's up until college and my internship, that's what I wanted to be. And that was the first time I realized, oh, I can go for that too. Yeah. And that, that was foreshadowing. Okay. So as quiet as it's kept, you 
have a more than an athlete story. And it's not like a, an adjacent story. You were a Division I basketball player, started games. You were one of the top players in Ohio. When did it click for you then that you felt like you had what it took to take basketball to the next level as an athlete? As an athlete, um, I've been playing. I always tell people this, like, it's, I think you and I spoke about this. Like, when you look at athletes, they're like, you know, if you look at a professional like Tom Brady or LeBron, mm -hmm. I think Tom Brady's in his 20th season? Yep, 20th. So Tom Brady's in his 20th season, LeBron's in his 17th season. But really, they're in like their 30th 34th season. 34th season. Yeah, yeah because yeah. really, LeBron started playing basketball at nine. So you have he's played every single year. Now, they all haven't been in the NBA. But so I have been playing basketball and football, and I played soccer, and I played baseball. Just I played my mom. Put me in everything. I think mostly because it's an easy babysitter. Yeah. She could keep drop me of off. At, she could keep you out of trouble. And she could drop me at practice. And you're there for two and a half, three hours. Right. And the coaches are watching you. And you walk home. But uh, I've been playing sports forever. Really kind of start dedicating my life to play, playing basketball. I played basketball in high school. Mm -hmm. Had a decent career. Realized in high school, I realized that I went to um, five-star basketball camp at the end of my freshman year, so the summer before my sophomore year in high school, and it was the first time on that I was gonna get, get to compete with players from all over the country on that level. And I was on the team with this guy who everybody was talking about. Um, everybody knew him, everybody was talking about him, and it was Jason Williams, or Jay Will, mm -hmm. who went to play at Duke. And um, Jay and I became friends. We played on the same team, and he was phenomenal. I mean, he could—he was—he's one of the better players I ever seen at that age. I mean, right. he could just do everything. We played against Steve Blake and a bunch of other guys who were in the pros, and our team won the championship. Jason was far and away the best player on our team, but I was far and away. I wasn't close to the best player on the team, but the third play best player on the team wasn't close to the second best player right. on the team, which was me. Right. And that's when I realized that I could play on a level at least to play in college. That's when my aspiration like mm -hmm. became less of a dream and more of like confirmation that I could play Division One basketball, which I went on to do. So how did you make the decision to go to Western Michigan? I made the decision. I was uh, from Ohio, as you know, and in Ohio, there's a lot of Division I schools because there's the MAC, and then there's big schools around. And by the time I became a senior, I wasn't getting recruited like Big Ten. I wasn't that good of a player uh, at that time. But of the schools that were recruiting me, I had some low uh, Division I, high major Division Ones, mm -hmm. a la like Marquette, uh, things like that. But I wanted to go to a place where as I could go in right away and play. I didn't want to sit on the bench, even though I was a freshman. I don't want I want to go with coaches I thought and believed would give me a shot to really play my freshman year, which I did. I ended up starting yeah. a few games my freshman year and played. But just so happens, I was in a situation where I got recruited uh, going into my senior year and decided to commit before my senior basketball season started because I didn't want to go through my senior year dealing with that. Worrying about it. Worrying about it, right. and I wanted to get it over with. Mm -hmm. So I really, before my senior year that fall, I took visits, I did the whole thing, and committed. And then the basketball season happened, and then that spring, the coach who recruited me got canned. So mm -hmm. I was like, well, what the hell does this mean? Um, so they hired a new coach who basically and I always respect him. He came to Akron, visited my house, re-recruited me. Because I was like, I don't know who this new coach. I had spent time with the coach who, had, who, had, uh, who I committed to. But this new coach came in. He came and, and kind of re-recruited me. And I decided to stay and go there. So you go to Western Michigan. And you're at a Division I basketball stoop. You're a starter. You start as a freshman in D1 basketball. And you make the decision to take another path. How did that decision come about? It came about, it was kinda as I, I alluded to it a little bit earlier. Um, I met a gentleman named Lynn Merritt, who's still one of my mentors and um, one of the people who deserve more credit for my career than just about anyone. Um, I met him, I had met him previously because at high school I, was a Nike, I went to Nike All-American camp. I was fortunate enough to be invited. Then I met him again 
um, on the, in the summer in the AAU circuit. I was out watching. I was actually watching LeBron play in tournaments, and I would go watch him play, and they played in Chicago, and they had a great team, and, of course, he was a really good player. And meeting Lynn, you know, at the time I was 19 or 20, and he told me he worked at Nike. And as you know, when you're from a neighborhood like us and almost all neighborhoods, Nike is the gold standard. Yep. So, and it was a little bit like I had always dreamed of owning a pair of Nikes and getting the new Nikes and I always wanted them. But I never thought about there's people who work there and <laughs> right. make all this happen. Right. right. Somebody designs these. I didn't know that. I never thought about that. So when I met him right away, that thing that my dad has kicked in, it just went into overdrive where I just started asking question after question after question, genuine, legit questions about the process at Nike and how do they decide who, you know, they're going to endorse and wear their product and how does it, who designs the sneakers and the marketing and question after question. And because of that, he took a liking to my curiosity and my thirst for knowledge and he offered me an internship. And I went to in between, so I went back to school. Before going into my junior year, I moved to Beaverton and lived there for three months and was an intern at Nike. And again, I affirmed that, oh wow, this is even cooler than being an athletic trainer. You really have to develop relationships, which is what I love and I like to do with athletes and then help them tell their story. Right. And I realized at that moment that I thought I liked Nike because of the sneakers and because of the athletes, but I realized what I loved about Nike, I never even thought about that because it wasn't a thing that, that I thought about at the time, was their ability to storytell with athletes, the stories mm. and the way that they articulated the, who the athletes are and the authenticity of the athletes. And, and that's what led you to buy the product. It mm. wasn't just the product or just Michael's fadeaway. That was, those were big components of it, but the real component of it was who he was and you bought into that and Nike told that story. And at that moment, I realized, wow, that's a job too. And I realized, you know, I could go back to college, keep playing. At that moment, I'm like, I'm almost certain I'm not going to be an NBA player. And could I have went overseas and played basketball? Certainly. But I'd rather get my career started now get the head start. than to go play basketball in some country in Europe or wherever and spend five or ten years doing that. I might as well get my career started now. So if I could get a job here, then that's what I'm going to do. And they offered me a consultancy. And then when LeBron turned pro, he was like, you have the information. You spent the time. You've been to Nike. You've been inside. I'm going to sign with Nike. I want you to go work there. I've already worked it out for them to hire you. Wow. I'm 5'7 on a good day with the biggest soles on a pair of sneakers you've ever seen. <laughs> okay. Did you wear lifts in your spikes? I should have. Because they would have helped me. I actually did put clay on my heels on the combine. Exactly. Taller. That's another story. <laughs> so in high school, I went to college to play football. I didn't even get scholarship. I, I paid my first semester Toledo. So I essentially walked on. I had a, a Division II basketball walk-on opportunity that I seriously considered. To before day, you went to Toledo. Before I went to Toledo. To this day, I feel like had I gone to play Division II basketball, this is my mindset, Mav. I feel like I would have worked my way up and I would have had an opportunity to play in the pros. Now, I might be out of my damn mind. <laughs> I've, I've never it's okay. seen you. You can tell me. I've, never, that relationship. I've never seen you play basketball. I'm sure you can play. You're a great athlete. You're a little undersized, but <laughs> okay. setting, that, setting that aside, I think it would have been a long shot just based on the numbers. If we went through NBA rosters, I'm not sure we find a lot of players no. from Division II schools. You're right. So and just forget you. I'm setting you and your size to the side. Understand. Just based on the numbers, I'm, Division II players don't always make it. And I, I appreciate that uh, sound perspective. So for you, 20 years removed from that decision not to play, continue your basketball career, and even you know, take away all the success and the fact that you are a pioneer in the sports industry, do you think if you would have stayed the course, you would have made it to the league? I, you know, I don't think I would have made it to the NBA, um, though I often think about, and sometimes even it's just natural to go, man, I wish I still, I would have played out and seen what happened. The team I was on at Western, when I got there, the new coach that came in, he kind of cleaned house, but he kept me in. But we had, my freshman year, I think we had probably eight freshmen and sophomores 
by the time they were juniors and seniors, they went to the NCAA tournament twice. And I wasn't on the, I often think like, wow, I really would have liked to play in the NCAA tournament, see what that felt like. They won the MAC once or twice. Um, and then just because I'm a competitor, uh-huh. I'm always like, I wonder if I could have like played in Europe and how good would I have been? I do think about it, but then my phone rings or someone comes in my office and I have to stop daydreaming and get, and get back to work. <laughs> it's one of those players one calling those, you, exactly. asking if you have any opportunities for exactly. them. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so you, you go work at Nike. When did the decision happen? It, was it you or LeBron that said, hey, I want you to take go over all of my business from here on out? It was, um, I worked at, after interning there and consulting and then I went there and worked. And I worked there for two years. And after those two years, I left to go become LeBron's partner and manage his business. Mm -hmm. And it was him. He really, you know, his idea and feeling of really truly empowering people Mm -hmm. is where I get that from and truly uh, embodying that feeling of of giving someone a chance who you believe in and trust. Right. And and you know they're going to do the job with the level that you need it done. I get that from him and he did that for me. Were you nervous? Absolutely. But I'd instantly do what I did when I got that job. I surround myself Mm. with amazing minds and thinkers who are specialists, who know what they know, lawyer, accountant, blah, 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 blah. And then immediately, instead of dictating to those people, get those people in the room and start talking about how this is our, our, we all have one mission, which was to really help LeBron and make sure he was set up to be successful in everything that he wanted to do. So we had to be a team and then turn it over kind of to them and just sit there and listen and be a sponge and soak it up and then put all that together. But I was learning from all the experts that worked with us. Managing the best basketball player in the world comes with tremendous responsibility. And if you're good at it, a salary to match. So being the smart businessman that he is, how did Mav decide to spend his first big paycheck? Well, we'll get to that right after the break. All right, time to get back to my conversation with Maverick Carter. So you take on and you start to have success and you're, you're managing the biggest basketball player ever. Do you remember your first big check and what did you do with it? Yeah, absolutely. LeBron had started, he decided, because he's always looking for a way to better himself, he decided in the offseason to keep his cardio going, his legs, he wanted to start he started riding a bike. Mm-hmm. So we, I started doing it. We did this thing. My dad would go with us. Randy, uh, LeBron's chief of staff, would go with us. Every morning, like probably three, four days a week, we'd meet at like 7 a.m. And we go, we have this beautiful, there's a beautiful uh, metro parks that connects Cleveland to Akron. And we ride bikes in the metro park. And there's a trail. And some days we do, started off doing like 10 miles. We worked it up to, we were doing like 40 miles. And, um, and it, turned, it was great. And through that, I started to think about two things. A, um, the fact that cross-training as a sport is not, it's not really a sport, but the idea of cross-training for all athletes is important as all athletes kind of train in different ways. But if you think about a basketball player or a tennis player, anyone who kind of bangs their legs around in their sport and in basketball, especially because you're playing on a hard surface, hard wood, getting on a bike to keep your cardio up in your legs while also saving your knees and hips is a beautiful story to tell for marketing. So I started to think about how do we translate LeBron's love, he had fell in love with bike riding and still does, and using it as training to a marketing story to then become a, a business. So my first idea was we should buy an old bike company and try and revamp it. The one I wanted to buy was Schwinn. So um, I called the guy who did our deals at the time, still does to this day, and told him this idea that I wanted to put together a group of investors and include some athletes, go buy a bike, I want to go buy Schwinn specifically because it was a brand everyone knew, buy that brand, and then use the athletes as a marketing story. They use it to cross, they use bikes to cross train to really Mm -hmm. bring the brand back. He said, great idea, let me see what I can find, because I knew he would knew people in, in business and private equity and who own things like this. He called me up a couple of days later and said, we're not going to do Schwinn, but I think I found the idea. 
you got to fly to New York and meet with a guy who owns this bike company called Cannondale, which I had never heard of mm-hmm. at the time. But I flew up here, met with the guy. It was the first time I learned about private equity. I was in a, the guy ran a private equity firm. I, ne- I didn't even know what that was. Right. And he was open to making a deal with us. And we made the deal uh, for LeBron to purchase a piece of the company. And LeBron, again, just being a guy who's empowering and goes for it, didn't take money from the company. He wrote a check to the company to, to purchase a piece. Um, and then he, LeBron got some more equity for giving his name, likeness, mm-hmm. and image to it. And then the guy taught me what sweat equity was. He says, I'm going to give you some of it, Mav, a little piece of the equity for the work because you're going to have to do this work. Because He's like, I don't know how to do this marketing storytelling thing you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And I knew it a bit from working at Nike. I was just taking my skills I learned at Nike and applying them to a different category. Um, I wasn't reinventing the wheel. And we did it, uh, brought on a couple athletes, a tennis player, um, and got going, got traction. That's when LeBron started this bike event that he did in Akron every year called the Bike. I started riding a bike pretty avidly. I built it up. I actually did a century ride here in New York, from New York to the Hamptons. Fell, I still ride a Cannondale. We owned it. And then a year and a half later, the, he, the guy called me up one day and says, we're going to sell Cannondale for a big profit, you guys are gonna do fantastic. And we sold the company to a big company called Doral Industries. And LeBron made three and a half or four times his money and I got a check. It's the first time I had ever got a real check. I was like, I think the, I think I got like $75,000 or close to $100,000. I couldn't believe it. I was like, first off, it wasn't even about the money. It was the money, obviously, but more than the money, it was like, that idea worked. Right. Like the thing I thought about, it actually, it contributed, it worked. We had the idea, we executed, we found the right partner and it worked. So it was, the money was definitely a big part of it, right? I, I might've had $5,000 to my name at that point. So um, it definitely was a big part of it, but the, the idea worked was what really dawned on me. It was like, this works. And I, and I learned a lot going through that. Mm-hmm. It's funny, on LeBron's desk uh, in his office, in Ohio, he has a plaque amongst all of his plaques, you know, four MVPs, rings. He has a, a plaque from some business group um, that's like a crystal plaque that says Cannondale, the turnaround of the year. Like mm. he, because he was one of the owners right. and they turned the business around in a year and a half and it got it won at this business awards and won the turnaround of the year award. So it's a cool award when you think about more than an athlete and he got that back in 2006. So was that a moment for you to make it click like, oh, I I got, I have the formula and I know I can do this? 100%, 100%. Did you feel prepared when the money came? Because you talk about always athletes getting money and not being prepared. Even when I played in Canada, which was, my salary was like 50,000 a year. I felt like I was rich and I definitely was not prepared. So now that you're cashing those big checks, how prepared did you feel to manage it? And how'd you figure out I was, how to navigate the I water? I was totally unprepared because no one had, I had nobody to lean on or rely on to prepare me for it. But more importantly, how do I keep doing it? How do I build this into something, right. A? And B, personally, I was not prepared for the money at all and definitely blew it all on you know some car I was dreaming about right. for sure. But again, to my point of the show, as an executive, that was for me, I was like, I want to make this just the beginning. I want to get better, more experienced at my job so I could keep doing this and build this into something that really becomes a value. Because the one thing I, I wasn't prepared for the money, meaning I took the money and blew it and had a great time mm-hmm. with the money and wasted all of it. Right. But what I did start to think about was it, what that taught me about was value over just money or how you have value in something or something is valuable were against, I had always come from my, everybody I knew had just had a job and you worked that job and you got a paycheck every two weeks. But this was something we held and it was valuable and you didn't get paid for it every two weeks, but you held it because it was valuable. And later you traded that for cash. So that idea of what is value and how do you find value in things is what I really learned going through that, I definitely was not prepared for the money. So, but you, so you're looked at, you are the expert. You were looked at as the expert when managing athletes and, and helping them navigate those waters. 
What is the best financial advice if you had to pick one thing to give to an athlete? If they come to you and say, Mav, hey, this is what's going on. What do you think? What is the advice you always give? The advice I would always give is, is a little bit of what I just talked about, which is don't put all the emphasis on just making money. Mm-hmm. Put all the emphasis on building value, building real value that is A, sustainable, and B, can become a platform for you. So I always talk anybody, but specifically athletes, about, okay, what is your platform? If you play soccer or tennis or basketball, that sport is your platform. So the first thing you have to do is make sure that 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 platform is solid and a foundation because then you can build other things on top of it. But the way to make sure that's solid, right, is you got to eat right, be in shape, play well. You got to keep the main thing the main thing, and that thing's got to be solid. And and that that becomes very valuable for you. But, But it has an expiration date on it. It has, if you started your career, some people's expiration date is 10 years, some is five, but it has some expiration date. But while you're in that window, you have to make sure you maximize that first. And the minute that becomes solid and a foundation that you can stand on and you can maximize, then you can start layering other things on top of it. And those things, you have to pick the lane that you care about, like you, like media. So you started to become a, a broadcast, an analyst, and now you can work as an executive. But, but without being a football player, that would have been very hard for you to do, right? right? And we all, in life, everyone needs a platform. If you work at ESPN, ESPN becomes your platform. If you work at Chase, Chase becomes your platform. If you, wherever you work at or what you, what you do or wherever you work at becomes your platform, and whatever that main platform is, before you start quickly doing other things, you got to make sure that thing is solid. So I, I can remember, this might have been two or three years ago now, we were at MIT. So I would speak on panels at MIT and I felt like I was big shit. I'm like, hey, look at me, right? <laughs> and one specific year, you were speaking and I was speaking. Um, I was in like a little side room. Obviously you were on the main stage. I'm still working my way up. <laughs> but I would always use that. That was my second or third year speaking, but I would use that opportunity to network. I would go in the green room since I was a speaker and I would shake the hands of people in media, owners, general managers, I mean, you name it. And it was always like a hustle for me, you know, just I'm like, I just want to figure out what's going on. And I can remember the year you came, Obama was the keynote speaker and we were in the green room and you're like, yo, Hawk, come, you know, come hang with me. So I'm just sitting beside you. And that's when it kind of just dawned on me. General managers, owners of NBA teams, owners of European soccer clubs, uh, billionaire owners of companies. These guys, Hall of Fame athletes were lined up to shake your hand. And it was like being with the sports version of the Beatles, right? (laughs) So for you, when did it click for you that you had arrived as a businessman and that people in the industry seen you for, for what you've been working to become for so long? The feeling of accomplishment is what I always like to, that's what gets me up in the morning is to go chase that feeling like, you know, to have kneading dough and uninterrupted, like to, mm-hmm. to, to accomplish those things and have people recognize them in the way that we wanted them to at our company is what I'm always after is like, I'm always chasing that thing. And it's, it goes back to that sports mantra, right? Of like, I'm always trying to look for that bulletin board material or right. something that, that you can go after. Cause on a grand scale, I'm, want that accomplishment and build something. But day to day, you're always looking for those little nuggets of like, oh, I got to go climb this hill. We got to go take that hill. Mm -hmm. We got to do this better than them. We got to, like, I'm always looking for those things. So as you think about the word arrive, I try not to, I don't ever even think about it that way. I just always, because I'm always looking for the other thing. I'm always looking for the thing that'll like, because that thing will start to make you feel kind of, you'll start to settle a bit and, you know, when I get old and I can't take as many plane rides and, and I can't get up and get after it as much, then I'll have time to think about all that stuff. But on a day in, day out basis, I'm looking for everything to keep pushing and keep looking for accomplishment that keeps you, keeps me going. So you're talking about how you're finding new accomplishments. For me, when I, when I was ready to retire, you were probably, no, not probably, you were one of, if not the first person that I told that. 
So I left camp with the New England Patriots. I flew out to LA to come meet with you. And we had the conversation and I'm like, hey, you know, I, my heart's not really in it. My knees definitely aren't in it. Um, and I knew it was time to move on. So we had a conversation and you were like, well, I would consider this, that. And ultimately you were like, hey, if you're ready to genuinely move on, we would love to have you here, a part of the family. And that was a huge deal for me because for someone who has been in sports so long and was looking to have something to transition to, a new challenge to learn, to have that opportunity was amazing. But even in that and saying that, hey, you can come work for me, I was like, I told you how I had an opportunity maybe to do some little radio show. And then I'm like, I'm not really interested in it, but somebody's called. That's really the only thing that I have to tri transition to. And you told me, if I were you, I would do it because you're getting done playing. You don't know what you're going to be good at or what you want to get involved in. So do as much as you can because you'll never know where you'll net out. And that's the only reason I went into media, went into being an analyst and kind of where I'm at now, which is wild to think about um, just from that little conversation. I've read from you that you didn't dream of owning and operating and founding a media company. But like you said, you're always looking for the next thing. And here we are. Where does that foresight come from for you? That's a good question. I, no, I definitely, I never sat around and dreamed about being in Hollywood or creating content. But when I got to Nike, when I realized that it's actually storytelling and that's the thing I love, that's what led me to here. But I think the, um, as I think about what I want to do and what we got to do as a company next, mm -hmm. I always base it on insights, on little insights, talking to people like you, talking to people who work, who, who I get, I'm fortunate enough to work with in the company, talking to athletes, data, but data from real humans, like really right. getting insight to what people are feeling and seeing. And, and Uninterrupted came from the idea that athletes wanted a place in a company that could represent them as more than an athlete, right? Like, but that came from me listening and hearing real conversations. So I try and really be sensitive to listen and keep my ears open to real insights from people and really how are people feeling and what are they going through and the challenges that they're seeing to dictate and guide me into what I do next and what we do next as a company. Looking back on where you're at now and everything you've accomplished, is there anything that you regret? Not one thing. It's, it's, it's fun. It's challenging. I wake up, you know, today I woke up with six challenges that were big and issues and, you know, um, but it's all fun. It's all their problems that just need to be solved. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I don't regret anything, any decision, anything we've done as a company, anything we've started. I, I think it's all, you know, a part of the story. It's all a part of the journey. And that's the fun part. That's actually the fun part. As I said, I, I want to go after accomplishments, but it's not the celebration that I like. I like going through the process and taking the journey. Incredible. All right, we're going to go through for take five minutes to go through some quick questions that we always ask. Is it hard to splurge on yourself? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> What's the one thing you always splurge on? I always, it's a bad habit, but I, if I sit down for dinner and I've had a long day, I've never have a problem buying a great bottle of wine because a great bottle of wine usually Rarely, but sometimes. I don't want to sound like an alcoholic. I will drink it by myself. <laughs> um, but usually when you're with a group of people, and it really brings people together. It encourages, you know, as we all know, the conversations get much better uh -huh. the more wine you have. So I'm always willing to buy a great bottle of wine. Always. Every single time. Always. All right. In order to keep extra money in your pocket, what's one broke habit that you've always kept? Since I was a kid, like, the idea of, like, having money or having things that have value, but you can't see them. They're uh -huh. not like, you know, you own the piece of this building. Like, <laughs> right. like that's not money. I think, like, <laughs> you know, where we come from, everybody only is like money. You need to right. have it's, actual money. Yep. It's, it's hand to hand. So not even as a broke habit, but just as a way to make, so that I'm always comfortable. Even though I'll go days, weeks, without spending actual bills, usually, I always have, couple hundred bucks in my pocket just to feel right. comfortable because I just like I get it you have money and it's this thing's worth that and that but like 
I just like, to, you know, I come from a place where you always need to have money because you never know what was going to happen or, or take place. All right. When it's all said and done, what do you want to be known for? I'd like to be known um, for a guy who worked at a company, um, helped to build a company that really empowered a generation of people to feel like they too can be more than. That's exactly what I want to be known for. That's incredible. Give it up for Mav Carter, everybody. We'll be back with a new episode soon. Until then, make sure you rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It's free. It helps other people find the show. And that way, you'll never miss an episode. Our executive producers are myself and John Fontanelli. This episode was produced by Logan Castradale, and our editor and engineer is Chris Watherspoon. And I'm Andrew Hawkins, a.k.a. Hawk, telling you what a wise man always told me. A penny saved is a penny earned.